If you would open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, please. <clears throat> and we'll be starting in verse 23. Last week we saw how the early church was beginning to encounter uh, adversity. Uh, the apostles Peter and John had healed a man in the temple who had been unable to walk for over 40 years, uh, only to then find themselves questioned by the religious leaders, essentially asking, on what authority are you performing this miracle? The question was, in what name? But as I showed you last week, the question essentially is, by what authority, by whose power are you accomplishing this? And they reply that it is in the name of Jesus, by the way, the one you killed that empowers us to do this. And in fact, is going that by this same authority, he will raise the dead. Last week, I talked to you a little bit about contextualization, how we might contextualize the gospel. And I showed you that that doesn't mean we're taking off the sharp edges of the gospel. In fact, in some instances, it means we take the very sharp edge that a person needs to hear and we press upon it because that's what needs to really land. And I think that's something that the apostles do here. Um, so then after being told to no longer share in the name of Jesus, the apostles basically reply with the question, who should we obey, God or you? You be the judges. And they depart. And so basically what follows out from that incident here is kind of a, I'm using this in sort of a paradoxical um, way this question, but what does spirit-driven disobedience look like? Now, I don't mean disobedience to God, but to religious leaders who may have it wrong, to authorities, civil authorities who may have it wrong. What does spirit-driven disobedience look like? And I think we see an example of it here. So big picture, what I really want you to grasp from this passage and from the sermon this morning is this. The early church teaches us how to stay on mission in the midst of adversity. All right, verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And so the first thing I want to draw out of this passage is the observation that the early church, in coming back from this initial persecution, <coughs> that they model for us how it is that we should pray. And the first thing I noticed that they do is they pray corporately. They come together and pray. And to be honest with you, this was convicting for me this past week as your pastor. 
Um, because I believe that we have a really strong word ministry at this church. I'm very proud of that. Our songs are saturated with the word of God as they ought to be. And the preaching that you hear, whether it's from me or one of our associates, you're going to hear the word of God proclaimed here as long as I'm entrusted with this position. You hear the word of God proclaimed and taught upstairs and downstairs in our Sunday school. We have a strong word ministry. But I felt a little convicted when I thought about how strong is our prayer ministry? We have times where we pray in our small groups together and Certainly on a Sunday morning, you're going to hear Pastor Ethan or me or somebody else who might be speaking. We're going to pray. And that's a very poignant time for us. Because when we're praying with the body gathered, it causes us to set aside our individual thoughts. And as we come before the Lord, we sort of gather you up imaginatively and we try to take all of us to the Lord and to his throne room and pray and advocate And so when I do that, I have to sort of get out of my own head and set my individual thoughts aside. And it's a real privilege to pray for the people of God uh, this way as as sort of a, a collective. And there's something really special, as you guys no doubt know, when you are in those small times of intimate prayer with a handful of others and you're praying corporately. When a brother or sister in Christ knows you and they know what's going on in your heart, and then know what's going on in your life. And some of those moments, you don't even have the ability to articulate your own prayers. But when somebody comes alongside you and they go to God on your behalf and they speak words of understanding and you hear them go to the throne room of God and sort of assault the throne on your behalf and implore God to act for you, it is deeply encouraging. I was thinking about the example that the apostles give us here, and I think this is something we need to do more as a church to pray together corporately. Um, This is something I think we need to grow in. Thankfully here, we're not just told that they prayed, but we're also told what they prayed. We get their very words, and they're instructive for us. And so the first thing I see that they do, not only do they pray corporately, but as we look at the nature of their prayers, they remind themselves of who God is, of his very nature. And um, I think this is a really good discipline for us in our prayers, whether individual or whether we're praying corporately, that we would take time to remind ourselves of who God is before we get on with the task of many petitions, that we would begin with the task of many affirmations, We're not reminding God. He hasn't forgot who he is. We're reminding ourselves. And when we do that, I think we find that as we reflect on the nature of God, we get guidance and direction and courage for our petitions because we know who he is and we know his inclination towards us. So again, rather than just instantly filling the air with rapid requests, I think it's good to take time and affirm to yourself who you're praying to just who our God is. Uh, Fred Sanders has called this praying with the grain. Praying with the grain. I like that. I like it so much that I'm going to try to illustrate it here without causing an injury. Now I have your attention. I'm doing my best for you guys over there. You sat on the wrong side this morning. Let me move my effects. 
one of the things I have done for years, I'm going to wear a glove, um, is, you know, starting fires at home or in our outdoor pit or whatever, you know, you've got to, you've got to have some good kindling, right? And a friend of mine, very kind-hearted guy, showed me this years ago. Well, we'll start with this one. Uh, a way to make some excellent kindling. These are end cuts, actually, from the trust plant here in town. These are pretty small ones because I wanted this to work and not fail. Um, and this is my beautiful hatchet um, that you guys have heard a lot about, and it'll cut your finger right off. But if I take this, this you know, little piece of two-by-four here, and I start hacking at it this way, I'm going to take chips and chunks out of it, right? It's going to take a while. I'm probably going to wear out before I get through it. But if I set it up on end like this, and I just give it a good whack, I can put the blade in, and then just with a couple taps, I'm through. And then as you keep going, same thing. It just gets a little easier. And this works so nicely because you're cutting with the grain. And it just wants to cleave open and split in this certain way. All right, this is show and tell Sunday. And I, I would like you to think about that and to see that picture in your mind when we pray. That when we go to the Lord in prayer and take time to reflect on who he is in his very nature, we give direction and shape to our prayers. We find boldness and confidence because what we're asking is in line with who we have affirmed him to be. Um, you may have heard of the old acronym. This is an old discipline, the ACTS kind of prayer, A-C-T-S, right? How many of you have heard of this before? You know this one. Do you know, it gets brought up a lot because it's pretty good. It's just pretty good still. And what it stands for, the A in ACTS stands for adoration. And the C, confession. And the T, thanksgiving. And the S, supplication. And so we kind of work through this sequential. This is a good way to help yourself learn to pray with skill, to pray with the grain, so to speak. Spend time in adoration, affirming who God is and letting your affections be cast upon him for his very nature. And once you do that, you're inherently going to be made aware of your own sinfulness and shortcomings, even after receiving the glorious gospel of Christ. Still a sinner, still a sinner. And this is the time to clear the air. We're saved. We're still saved. We're always in the family of God after conversion. But sometimes we need to clear the air relationally with the Father. So we confess what is brought to mind. We clear the air and we draw close to him in intimacy. And then in thanksgiving, we recall what is it God has done for us in the past. Again, we're reminding us ourselves of his nature, not just in ontologically who he is, but actually what he's done. And then finally, we get to supplication. We get to the point of asking, and we are here praying with the grain. We know who it is that we're asking and what we're asking for. Um, G.I. Packer has a great little book. I've put it in your notes called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And he has this great line in that book, which I love. He says, the Christian is the sanest and wisest when he prays. 
the sanest and the wisest when he prays. Because the very act of prayer reinforces the truth about things. He is God, and we are not. And we may protest or even have difficulty with aspects of the sovereignty of God. We may have more questions than answers, but the act of prayer betrays that we ultimately believe in it. Because in prayer, we are a creature that is going to the throne room of our creator. We're reminded that God made us, and he made us for himself. And when we pray, we recognize that we are finite, we have limits, but we recognize that God is infinite and has power, which is why we've come to him in the first place. The Christian is the sanest and the wisest when he prays. And then a packer follows this line with one other. He says, on our feet, we all have arguments, but on our knees, we're all agreed. So in prayer, they remind themselves of who God is and they comforted themselves as they affirmed his sovereignty. They found comfort in that. The next thing we see here is they recalled prayers preserved in the word of God. And I think this is another discipline that we would be wise to recall and to practice in our own spiritual life. And that is imitating the prayers we find in scripture or borrowing them outright. Even borrowing the prayers of saints that have gone before us can be very, very helpful, especially the Psalms, particularly the Psalms, but of other saints as well. Um, Athanasius, who is the fourth century theologian, said a very beautiful thing about the Psalms. He says that most of the scripture speaks to us, but the Psalms speak for us. They speak for us. They give us a language. They give us a precedent. They give us prayers that God himself has preserved in a way of saying, this is how you can approach me. We can be absolutely confident to pray even some of the hard prayers, some of the hard things because they're preserved in God's word. A whole category, a whole genre of Psalms are called the imprecatories, where in a sense, a person goes to God with their outright anger and sort of calls down, Lord, you deal with this. You break the teeth of the wicked. And as much difficulty as it might have, it might look kind of like an ugly prayer. The beautiful thing is the person who prays the imprecatories is not taking matters into their own hands, but going to God to do something about it and can trust God to handle even their most outrageous anger. God, you act, you move, you bring your justice to bear. So we might be a little uncomfortable with what the imprecatories say, but recognize we're going to God who has something to say about the world such as it is. And there's a beauty in that. St. Augustine called the Psalms a school, a school, which is a pretty good illustration. Uh, I think his mentor, Ambrose, actually has even a better word picture. He calls the Psalms a gymnasium, a place we go for regular workouts to keep ourselves in shape for a life of spirituality. I like that. I'm a guy that goes to the gym, might not look it, but I do. Just think about how that bad things would be otherwise. I see many of you there. And we all pass each other and laugh. How you doing? Horrible. I just got here. I've got hours ahead of me of strenuous activity I don't want to do. 
Or so you catch someone on the way out. How are you doing? I'm making the best rep of the day right here, walking out the door. This is, this is my favorite exercise. Here I go, <laughs> right? We go to the gym to work out and to try to keep our bodies fit. We go to the Psalms to try to stay fit spiritually. Feeling assured there of what is there, we can pray this. It is a, God has preserved the prayers of prior saints and said, pray thusly. I find pleasure in these. Um, pastor and author Tim Keller has a devotional habit of praying five psalms a day or reading through five psalms a day. Um, so he does that. And then so that after a month, he would have gone through the entire book of Psalms and then he starts it again. Ideally, in a year, he would have been through the Psalms 12 times. And admittedly, he says he does this so that the Psalms will shape his heart so he will have the affections for God that God has preserved through the book of Psalms. Uh, I have a couple other resources I thought I would bring if just kind of for the value of using the prayers of others, which can be helpful sometimes when we can't find our own wording or articulate our own thoughts and feelings. Uh, one of my favorites, and a lot of you probably know this one, is called Valley of Vision. This is a Puritan prayer book, and it's just excellent. Sometimes they're a little bit much, because the Puritans are. But sometimes something is said there in such a beautiful way that it just stays with you throughout the day. It's not your own word, but it's become your prayer because they helped it first. Another book that I have here, this is the Book of Common Prayer. For the Anglican Church uses this. We jokingly refer to this in our household as the Book of Complex Prayer, because I don't quite fully understand how this book works totally yet. It's a little bit tricky, but Again, every now and then there are certain prayers in here that I go, that's beautiful and well said. If you're not comfortable kind of sorting out between the good and, and the bad of, of another sort of prayer book, stick with the Psalms. It's what the apostles did here. And I think another thing that's good about this is it helps us participate with the universal church. And, and, and I don't just mean the universal church of the, of the moment, I mean the universal church of history. We can be a little myopic and sometimes culturally conditioned in the way that we relate to God when we're so narrowly focused on the now. And entering into prayer with the saints, whether it's the Psalms, those even with sort of maybe some traditions that are adjacent to us, not way out there, but right next to us, and certainly those that have prayed centuries before us can enrich our time of prayer and perspective. So listen again, the prayers that the apostles recall here in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his Holy One. They pray the Psalms. The Psalms inform their present moment here. And then fourth thing that I noticed about their, their sort of time together here is that they recall the unfaltering plan of God. Um, just as important as reminding ourselves about who God is, is reminding ourselves of what God has done. Um, a pastoral acquaintance of mine named Tim Walton said this over 20 years ago, and it has stayed with me still. Lawyers must argue from legal precedent using case law. Sometimes I need to argue with my own soul on a faith precedent 
on those cases where I have seen God work on my behalf in the past. So who is it that God is and what is it that God has done? And I think praying in this way helps keep us from becoming deists. A deist is someone who believes, yeah, there's a God, but he's kind of out there and pretty far removed. He sort of wound this thing up and set it free, but he's not really involved in the activities of every day here. But when we recall for ourselves and for our tired soul what God has done for us in the past, we remember that he knows me. He knows my name. He knows my situation. He cares and he has acted before. And on that faith precedent, I will call him to act again. And so as they're doing this, as they're praying this, it's, it's really fascinating. Praying this way, first of all, they reflect upon this present conspiracy that they're dealing with, right? Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and the entire Sanhedrin are conspiring to kill their witness. But as they think about this, they recall for themselves a previous conspiracy by Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jews who conspired to kill Jesus. And they're able to look at these two conspiracies and recall for themselves that even the conspiracies of man unwittingly accomplished the plans of God. And they encourage their souls with this. Affirming to themselves God's very nature, God's revelation, and God's activity in the past, it serves as an anchor for their soul in a troubled time. Next uh, big thing I want to look at here quickly is that the early church teaches us what it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. First of all, just notice, what is it they were able to do? They were able to speak the word of God boldly. What was their initial prayer request? God, enable us to speak the word of God boldly. God answered their prayer. They were praying with the grain and they received not just what they want, but because they're praying with the grain, they know they're praying for what God wants and he is happy to give it. This idea of being filled with the Spirit, this is a, this is a big theological um, discussion. There's a lot around this and we're just gonna touch on it here and it'll keep unfolding as we go through the book of Acts. But at the point of our conversion, when we begin to have a saving faith in Jesus Christ, when we confess our sins and trust in Christ and we are regenerated, we are saved from our sins, we are at that point in time baptized by the Holy Spirit. And let me be real clear about that. That means we have all of him. He is all into us, all up into us, if you want to say it that way. We have the whole Holy Spirit. And he does not come or go in our lives. And I don't believe that we get doses of him. What I think it means here when we talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit, I think we're the contingent factor typically. In other words, when one is filled with the Holy Spirit, it doesn't mean that we have more of him. It means that he has more influence in us. We have yielded more of our lives to him. As we practice obedience, as we confess, as we renounce shameful deeds, as we follow in greater imitation to Jesus Christ, we are yielding more and more territory in our life to the Holy Spirit who is fully there. 
and we find ourselves filled by the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not sure that this captures it completely. It seems to me that there are times when the Holy Spirit, frankly, does what he wants to do. And we seem to be almost non-factors. And I'll leave that to the Lord. But generally speaking, the, the principle I see throughout Scripture is that we have one baptism of the Holy Spirit and continuous filling. And that filling grows and increases as we follow more closely Christ Jesus and as we yield more territory of our lives to him. And this is consistent with Paul's command in the Ephesians. He says, keep on being filled with the Spirit. As as though there's a part we play in this, continually yielding ourselves to him. So oftentimes when we think about being filled with the Holy Spirit, particularly in the book of Acts, we see sort of big signs and phenomenon. And that sometimes happens in Acts. Even here, it says the room was shaken. But what was the outcome of it? They went on to speak the word of God boldly as they prayed. So the filling of the Holy Spirit enabled them to speak the word of God boldly. And then the third big point here, we see that the early church model for us how to share. All of the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles also called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field uh, that he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. What really hit me this week as I was looking over this and studying it was this, this phrase that starts this, path, this part of the passage here that in my mind is what activated their sharing and their sacrifices. It was this idea that they were of one heart and mind, this sense of unity. As they thought about their salvation, it's not just that I have personally been saved from my sin and therefore great, now I'm good with God but they saw themselves saved into a community, the household of God. They saw themselves as members of one another, such that there is a radical kind of transformation in their lives. What incredible evidence of the gospel taking root in someone's life that they effectively renounce their own possessions and say that what's mine is yours. I don't see that anybody said what's yours is mine, but that would naturally happen too, right? That's the joke in our house, actually. What's mine is Amy's, and what's Amy's is Amy's. (laughs) Some of you, it happens in your house too. But so intertwined are our lives as Christians, as family of God, that it ought to be that what is mine is yours, right? My chainsaw, yours to use. My boat, I don't have a boat, So easy to say, yours to use. (laughs) My four-wheeler, my pickup, my tools, my rifle, my fly rod, (laughs) yours to use. 
Can we say that? I think that thing that we hold on to the most is that thing we need to let go of the most because it has a hold on us. One of the first words of children everywhere, especially if they have older siblings, mine, mine. Unredeemed hearts don't want to share. And if they do, it's often a quid pro quo, right? Sure, you can use my chainsaw in June. I'm gonna need your trailer in August, right? But the gospel had so transformed their lives that it transformed the way they thought about their stuff. They shared generously, they gave outright, and they did not count it as their own. I think that's a strong, sharp message for a world today that's very materialistic, and I include myself in that. But they were not only generous with their possessions, they were equally generous with the gospel itself. So they shared possessions, but they shared the gospel. They went into this praying, Lord, give us the ability, enable us to proclaim the word of God boldly. And he had done so. I noticed too about their gospel articulation that a regular feature of it or a focal point of their gospel conversations was the resurrection. I I think maybe the contemporary church has something to learn about this too. There may be no greater place to start your gospel conversations with than the resurrection. I think for unbelievers, sometimes if we start with the death of Christ, it kind of sounds like we're starting at defeat. But if we start at victory, Hey, there was the resurrection of Jesus Christ who died for you. Well, now I got something to deal with. Because if a man died for me, I mean, we know lots of examples of where somebody may have died sacrificially. Humans do that. Everyday, ordinary, even sinful people might sacrificially give themselves for another. But nobody raises from the dead but Jesus. And if he has, then that has a calling and a bearing upon our life. They shared the gospel, and a focal point of it was the resurrection. I think there's something to learn there. And then finally here, they sacrificed for the needs of others. They didn't just give easily what they had at hand. And sometimes they did an audit of what they had, and they sold it. That's, the, that's an amazing thing. Now, I grew up uh, in a church in Apple Valley, California, and there was a man there who modeled this for me and for my family and for our church. His name was Dr. Kane. And he was just a godly, wonderful man. And I can remember many times he would come up to my dad on a Sunday morning. My my parents were missionaries. And he would come up with an envelope and he would hand him a a gift and, and typically quote a passage of scripture that had motivated him to give. And uh, I remember my dad one time telling him, Dr. Kane, you sure have been very generous to our family. And he said, you know, I really hate to die with money in the bank, (laughs) which I thought was really sweet. He had owned a huge parcel of land and sold it so that the church could uh, build the very building there. He then sold another piece of land so that they could expand and have a Christian school. And as there were occasions where there were difficulties and somebody needed help, he would very often sell something. When I became an intern at my home church, I was commuting back and forth from Biola to Apple Valley Baptist. He said, well, I have this extra car, Eric. Why don't you just use it till you, while you do this for the next few years? Give me a car to use. 
That man was wealthy, not because of what he had, but because of what he let go of. And he enriched the family of God. He was like Acts living among us and a great example to me. I think if Christians could live in this kind of open-handed and generous way, it would not only be a blessing for us, but it'd be an incredibly compelling Christian witness of a gospel that changes what are normally selfish hearts. So I want to just last thing here, just remind all of us, all of this beautiful activity that they get into here. This is done in the midst of persecution and adversity. Having been arrested, having been told not to share any longer in the name of Jesus, they crouch down and get real small and scared, right? They turn up the volume. We have a gospel to preach and we have a gospel to live in community together. And I think that's an incredibly compelling witness. May it be so of us. Let's pray. Father, we will no doubt face adversity and persecution as the days grow darker. It seems, Lord, that the scriptures don't tell us that things get better before the end, but rather worse. So we just note that. But we note also the way that you have empowered those who desired to be your witnesses. Lord, may we be those who proclaim the word of God boldly. I pray, Lord, this moment right now that by your spirit, you would be convicting each person and what they may need to renounce, what they may need to change, what they may need to give away. I pray also that your Holy Spirit would encourage and lift up and bless and speak to and minister to the wounded heart. Lord, thank you for the example of these imperfect followers of yours came together and prayed and showed us, Lord, what spirit-filled disobedience might look like. May we follow you wholeheartedly, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.